Bibles out to John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're welcome to take it home, read it, consider the claims of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at John chapter 10, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is the kind of verse that we tend to just fly right by. We just breeze right past it. Just nine words takes less than... Two seconds to read that out loud, and yet it contains a metric ton of drama. If we stop and if we pause, if we consider what's happening here. So let's, let's just try to do that together. Just pretend with me for a moment that you're in Jesus' shoes. Not that you ever could be, but just do your best to put yourself in Jesus' shoes in this situation. Imagine yourself walking through the temple courts. As you do, you're, you're passing under Solomon's colonnade. And as you walk, a crowd begins to gather around you. As you look at the crowd, you can see that they don't look particularly happy to see you. There seems to be a bit of tension in the air, and you can feel it. Now, the first man from the crowd to approach you seems to have a strange look in his eyes. And behind him maybe stand a dozen or two other people who seem to have the same kind of look in their eyes. And you've seen this look before. The last time you saw it, the crowd turned into a mob. They picked up stones to stone you. But you remain calm, collected. As the crowd begins to question you, the people want to know, are you the Messiah? How long, will they, they ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, just tell us plainly. Now to us today, this question seems reasonable enough on the surface, and yet something tells you that this is less of a question And more of a confrontation. The air begins to thicken around you. But with a steady voice, you reply. I've already told you who I am. But you refuse to believe me. You've seen my works. You know what I've done in my Father's name. But you still won't believe. You'll never believe. You can't believe. Because at the end of the day... You don't belong to me. You are not my sheep. I am not your shepherd. If I were your shepherd, you would hear my words and you would believe my words because all of my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and they follow me when I call. And as you begin, excuse me, as you continue to speak, you can hear the crowd begin to murmur. Sheep. 
why is he talking about sheep? I asked him if he was the Messiah. He's talking about sheep? This crowd begins to simmer. You continue. You say, I give my sheep eternal life, and because of that, they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And as you say these words, perhaps you pause and you look out at the sea of faces surrounding you, and, and maybe your heart begins to swell. You feel love for these people. But you also experience grief because you know that your words are falling on deaf ears. And yet you must continue to speak the truth, and so you do. You say, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand because I and the Father are one. And as soon as you utter these words, you see the eyes of those who are surrounding you flash with anger. Some in the crowd fail to immediately grasp the significance of your words, but those who do understand begin to hiss and whisper violently to one another. Are you hearing this? He just claimed to be God. He said that he's one with the Father. Maybe a man standing behind you grabs you by the shoulder, spins you around. And in his face, you can see pure, unbridled, righteous indignation. The man cries out, how dare you claim to be one with the Father? The rapid simmer of the crowd is now growing into a boil. As more and more people present begin to grasp the significance of your words. (laughs) He thinks he's God. He thinks he's God. He says that he and Yahweh are the same. And then as if on cue, you hear one of the men in the crowd begin to recite the words of Leviticus 24.16. God's word says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. Has he not blasphemed the name of the Lord by claiming to be one with God? You know what the law of Moses demands. And the crowd cries out in agreement, Amen! Amen! May it never be that someone who blasphemes the name of Yahweh escapes what is coming to him. One of the men in the crowd might step forward and begin to exhort the assembly. Scripture is clear. This man, Jesus, even if he is some kind of a prophet, is claiming to be God. This is blasphemy. And then you notice something. No one in the crowd is looking at you. You can no longer see the whites of anyone's eyes because everyone is looking at the ground. And they're not just looking at the ground, they're scanning the ground. They're searching the ground. And you realize they're looking for stones, rocks. The crowd begins to fan out, and as they do, You see them bending over to pick up rocks, large rocks, heavy rocks. And you could, if you were so inclined, make your escape right here. You've done it twice before. You could do it again, but you don't. Not yet. Rather, you choose to 
engage this crowd turned into a mob. And this time you engage the crowd with a question of your own. Look at verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So in verse 32, we see that even as the crowd grows into a mob, Jesus is still in control. Right? Surrounded by angry men with stones in their hands, ready to kill him, he is still in complete control. Now we know that the most dangerous mob is always the mob that's filled with righteous indignation. It's the mob that believes that their violence is morally justified. And the Jews, as they see it, are 100% morally in the right for what they are getting ready to do to Jesus. They've all heard what he said. I and the Father are one. They would say, it's undeniable. We've all heard he has just blasphemed. And because they can't see the divinity of Christ before their eyes, the only thing that they can conclude is that he must die. Therefore, this mob sees itself as 100% morally in the right. The irony, of course, and this is one of two ironies we're going to see this morning, is that this mob is 100% morally in the wrong. The mob is in the wrong at a factual level because Jesus is not a blasphemer. He is God. So when he says, I and the Father are one, he's just telling the truth. But they're also wrong on a procedural level. Even if their blasphemy charges were accurate, which they aren't, but even if they were, they would still be wrong for attempting to mete out capital punishment without any kind of trial or investigation. I know that modern man likes to think that our generation is the first generation to think of court proceedings with a judge and witnesses and cross-examination and the rights of the accused and all of that good stuff, but friends, the right to a fair trial was not invented by the founding fathers of America. They borrowed that from the Lord God, the stipulations that he laid out in his word. According to the Mosaic law, before any kind of capital punishment could take place, there would need to be a trial. The high priests and the judges of Israel would need to do what Deuteronomy 17 calls diligent inquiry. Diligent inquiry. There would need to be witnesses present who could verify these allegations. This is the language of investigation and formalized court procedure. Friends, you should know that there is nowhere in Scripture where you can find mob justice, even for the case of blasphemy, ever being approved of. It doesn't exist. The phrase mob justice is itself an oxymoron. A mob can never carry out true justice, even if those being punished by the mob are 100% guilty of the crimes that they have been accused of and do, in fact, deserve the punishment that they are being meted out, they are still victims of injustice. The mob is still carrying out an act of oppression because there must be some kind of trial to do two things. Number one, establish guilt, and number two, deliberate a just punishment. Why? Why? 
Because even if the mob gets it right with this person, they may not get it right with the next person. Even if you give this person exactly what they deserve, you may be wrong about the next person and give them the exact opposite of what they deserve. Case in point, Jesus does not deserve to be stoned. Court proceedings, imperfect though they may be in a fallen world, are divinely appointed institutional mechanisms meant to protect justice at a community level. So, whether we're talking about a white mob trying to lynch nine black boys in Scottsboro, Alabama, or a Black Lives Matter mob burning down neighborhoods in Minneapolis, it's all injustice. Consider the language of Proverbs eighteen seventeen. The first to state his case seems right. This is usually where the mob comes in, right? Until another comes and cross-examines him. And cross-examine is exactly what Jesus is going to do to the mob in this morning's text. But let's consider Proverbs 18, 17 a bit more. Listen to what one commentator has to say. The meaning is clear. It's easy to make accusations but accusations must be substantiated. This is why accusations themselves must be probed for consistency and evidence. If there are witnesses, they must be heard and their testimony must be weighed. All the facts must be brought forth from both accuser and accused. And during the adjudication process, the accused must not be presumed guilty based merely on the accusations. This is true justice, even when it comes to blasphemy, even when it comes to sexual abuse and misconduct, even when it comes to hate crimes, even if everyone in this crowd, well, excuse me, I should just refer to the crowd in general, and by crowd, we live in a digital age, the crowd gathered physically, the crowd gathered online, it doesn't matter. Even if everyone in the crowd is in complete agreement because in their minds the facts are indisputable, God says that the facts must be agreed upon through a formal process of adjudication. Now, back to Jesus in the crowd. As the mob moves in to stone Jesus, Jesus stops them in their tracks. That's what he just did in verse 32 when we read what we read. He says, you want to kill me without a trial, but I'm not going to let that happen. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put you on trial. Just look at verse 32 again. Right as they're getting ready to stone him, they've already picked up the stones. Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? Jesus says, you're trying to not give me a trial, but I'm not going to let that happen. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to put you on trial. What evidence do you have for what you're claiming against me, this punishment that you're going to inflict upon me. For which miracle are you going to kill me? Now, this is pretty classic Jesus. What Jesus is saying here with this question is something like this. He's saying, look, guys, the whole reason you gathered around me today and, and asked me if I was really the Messiah is because you've been seeing me do all of these works that you know and that everyone knows someone couldn't do unless they really were from heaven. 
Right? That's what the blind man said. You remember Jesus healed the blind man and then the Pharisees called him over and the Pharisees were like, so this dude Jesus, right? He's a sinner, right? Agree with us. And he was like, I don't know about that. I don't think you can do the things that this man does unless you're from heaven. So everyone knows, even these people know, that you can't do what Jesus has been doing unless you really are divine. And so Jesus says, hey, before you pick up stones and kill me, consider the evidence before you end up doing something that you'll regret. This line of reasoning goes right over their heads. Look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So this is their logic. They're saying, we're not stoning you for your works. We're stoning you for your words. But Jesus' whole point is that his works bear witness to his words. If you put Jesus on trial, and if you put his words on trial, his works would be called in as a testimony. And he's been saying this for some time now. In John 5, he said this. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me. But the Jews didn't get it in John chapter 5. They don't get it now. Even when Jesus will perform the greatest work of all, rising from the grave, victorious over death, they will still, by and large, not get it. They will refuse to believe. Friends, I want us to see here that unbelief is the essence of their response to Jesus. Their words, consider them. They say, you being a mere man, make yourself God. You being a mere man, make yourself God. In verses 25 and 26 of John 10, which we studied last week, Jesus addressed this crowd around him as unbelievers. And now here in verse 23, uh, excuse me, in verse 33, it's as if their words just continue to validate what Jesus said about them. He's like, hey, listen, you guys don't believe in me. And you won't believe in me. And then the more Jesus talks, the more they respond in such a way as to prove how true it is what he's saying. Not only are their words ignorant, but they're also ironic. Just consider the irony of what they're saying. They're saying, you, a man, make yourself out to be God. If they only could see that Jesus is in fact the opposite. He is God who has made himself man and come down to save the world. But the trial continues. After Jesus urges the mob to slow down, to consider the evidence of his works, Jesus moves to call another witness in his favor. He calls the Holy Scriptures. Look at verse 34. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? Now, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? That makes immediate sense to us all, yes? We're going to talk about what these verses mean in a minute, and we'll probably read them again, a little bit slower, meditate on them. 
But before we do that, I just want us to see what Jesus is doing here because it really is pure genius. We can learn a lot from Jesus in this interaction. You remember, Jesus said, I want you to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that's, that's really what Jesus is demonstrating here in this interaction. So here's what he's doing. He's using scripture, because he's quoting scripture here. He's using scripture to show his detractors that they don't really understand scripture. If they did understand scripture, they wouldn't be trying to stone him without a trial. If they really understood scripture, they would believe Jesus when he comes along and says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the eternal wellspring. I am everything, right? These hostile, unbelieving Jews think that they are standing on scriptural grounds as they move to stone Jesus, when in reality, they are in violation of scripture. And now, Jesus is going to show them the depth of their ignorance. Jesus is saying, let's see how well you really know the word. And then he quotes from Psalm 82, right? That's what we, fo- that's what we find here in Psalm 82. It's right there at the end of verse 34. Is it not written in your law? I said, and this would be the Lord speaking, Yahweh, I said, you are gods. Now this interpretation has given, uh, excuse me, this verse has given many interpreters the fits. Right? What does it mean, I have, I have said that you are gods? Well, listen, I'm actually going to make this really simple for you. I, I promise you it's not that complicated. We're going to run through the three options for what this verse means. I'm going to tell you which options are the wrong options uh, because they just can't be proven from Scripture. And then I'm going to show you, uh, I think, pretty easily what the correct option is, the third option. So with God's help, let, let's dig in. Three different views of, of this Scripture quotation. Some commentators think that these gods that are being referenced in Psalm 82 and quoted by Jesus are other lesser deities. Right? So they would say, well, in the ancient world, there was really a pantheon of gods. And Yahweh, if there's like, a, like, an, like an org chart, you know, Yahweh would be at the top like the CEO of the gods. And then there would be these other lesser gods underneath him. And, and those are the gods to which the psalmist or to whom the psalmist is referring. Well, there are a couple of pretty significant problems with this view. This is the most obviously wrong answer. The first issue is that no Jew would ever, ever say that there was more than one God. This is kind of like one of the fundamental defining characteristics of Judaism. The, the ancient world was full of polytheistic religions, poly, many, theist, God, full of people who worshipped many gods. The thing that made the Jews distinct was that they said, no, there's only one God, Yahweh is his name. They would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God is one. This was such a significant aspect of Jewish thought that no Jew, including Jesus, the best Jew, would ever consider the concept of lesser gods to be valid. Just even consider the Apostle Paul and some of the language he uses. Remember, he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees in his day. He says this to the Corinthian church. We know that an idol, these little gods, right, has no real existence and that there is no God but one. 
So whether we're talking about the psalmist or Jesus or the Apostle Paul, no Jew would ever say that there are little g gods running around. So that option is out. The second possibility here is that these little g gods from Psalm 82 are angels. They're angels. That's what some interpreters think when they read verse 1. Turn with me to Psalm 82. Just keep your place in John 10 and turn over to Psalm 82. So, starting in verse 1 of Psalm 82, we read, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So, according to this view, God takes all of the angelic beings and sort of gathers them around him. This kind of big circle, right? And, And he is the leader of the council, and they do justice together in the world. A sort of one body with with the Father being the head of that body. There are all kinds of problems with this view, uh, but it is the most common view uh, among uh, professing Christians, and therefore I want to spend a little more time trying to show you that it's, 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 it's also wrong. I'm going to show you four reasons. There are more. I just wanted to give you four in the sermon so it doesn't feel like a lecture. But there are four reasons why this is the incorrect view or unincorrect view. The first is that in Scripture... Angels are never said to render judgment on humans. To the contrary, when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians that they will one day render judgment on angels. The second reason why this view is uh, erroneous is because the phrase divine counsel only appears in this one verse in Scripture and nowhere else. You can't build a whole theology of of God and angels and a high court of heaven based on a phrase that only appears in one verse in the entire Bible. The third reason why I would reject this interpretation is uh, the language that's used in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Let's start with verse 6. This is, the, by the way, verse 6 is the verse that Jesus is quoting. The Father is speaking and he says... I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. So these little g gods are said to die one day. But angels don't die. So that's the third reason why we would reject this. And then fourth, there is the fact that these little g gods are said to be perpetuating injustice amongst the poor, the weak, and the defenseless. That's, that's kind of the whole issue here, right? Look at verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Wicked, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So whoever these little g gods are, there are people who are oppressing. They're using their authority to hurt the most vulnerable in society. That's not the language that is ever used of angels anywhere else in the Bible. This seems to be language that is being used of temporal rulers, earthly rulers, like kings and judges and magistrates, which leads me to 
The third view, which I think is the correct view, which says that that's exactly who these little G gods are, leaders in Israel. Specifically, leaders in Israel who have set themselves up as gods among the people in their abuse of their authority. And therefore, God is using sarcasm to mock them when he calls them gods. So in verse 1, God has taken his place amongst the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. These gods are not gods. They are men who have set themselves up as gods. So the first reason why I think this view is useful and true is because it just makes the, more, the most sense out of the rest of the psalm. Right? These so-called gods, we've already seen, they will one day die. But look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says how they will die. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Like any prince. What God is saying here is there's, listen, you're like every other despot. You're like every other king who has gotten a position of authority, gotten a crown on his head and thought, I'm like God up here. I can make anyone do anything I want. I'm in control. And yet they all die. And so God is saying, you unjust rulers in Israel, you, 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 think, like, you think you're gods, but you're going to die just like every other prince, just like every other king, just like every other queen. You will not live forever, forever because you are not God. The second reason, contextually, why I prefer this view is uh, because it makes the most sense of the language of injustice here, right? Wh- whoever these little g gods are, they are doing injustice in the land. That sounds like temporal leaders. And then the third reason, moving outside of Psalm 82, uh, why I think this is a correct view, is because God uses this language in reference to unjust leaders elsewhere. Just listen to Ezekiel 28. Speaking to the ruler of Tyre, God says this. This is what the Lord God says. Your heart is proud, and you have said in your heart, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the sea. And then God responds to that, and he says, Yet you are a man and not God, though you have regarded your heart as that of a God. So this seems to be a motif in the Old Testament where rulers who are vainglorious, view themselves to be God, and God comes along and he goes, you're, you're, you're not gods and you're going to die and that's going to prove it, right? So in summary, these gods that Jesus is referencing are proud rulers in Israel. Now, this leads us to the question, why is Jesus quoting this psalm? This is another instance where it's like, Jesus, I'm not immediately seeing the connection here, right? Help me understand. Well, here's what it comes down to. These wicked rulers in Israel, with their words, were professing to be divine. You see that? They were professing to be divine. But God comes along and points out their works and says, your evil, wicked works prove that your words are false. If you were divine, you would be acting justly. So your works 
disprove your words. Going back to John 10, Jesus is getting ready to be stoned. He says, for which of my works are you going to stone me? And they go, hey, idiot, it's not your works that we're going to stone you for, it's your words. But Jesus says, my works bear witness to my words. You don't see this, but we've already seen this already. You guys know your Bibles? Let's go back to Psalm 82. Do you remember these corrupt rulers in Israel? With their words, they professed to be God. But God came along and pointed at their works and said, ah, you're not really God's. Look at, look at, look at your works. And Jesus is drawing this contrast. They claim to be divine, but their works prove that they weren't. I'm claiming to be divine, and my works prove that I am. See what Jesus is doing here? It's slick. The crowd doesn't even pause to consider Jesus' argument. They immediately try to grab him, but he escapes. And then the text tells us in verse 41 and 42 that he goes over across the Jordan and sort of sets up camp there as he prepares for the next phase of his ministry, which will inevitably lead him to his death on the cross. So that's the text. That's, that's what this morning's text is all about. We, we've gotten the meaning of the text. Now, as I was working on this week's sermon, I was really struggling. I was, I was trying to think, God, help me, give me some application for our people, right? Help me see how this text applies to our lives, because I believe that it applies to our lives, right? All of God's word is profitable for life and godliness, right? There's something about this battle between Jesus and his enemies, this battle which is being fought over his identity, his words and his works, there's something about this that applies to our lives today, but it's not immediately obvious how. And then the Lord was kind and he showed me exactly how this applies to our lives today. This is a text about how Jesus' miraculous works bear witness to his words. That leads us to a problem. Because miraculous works are not happening in the same way today. The signs and wonders as performed by Jesus and his apostles, they have by and large ceased. Well, Sean, are you saying that God doesn't do miracles? No. Are you saying that God won't do miracles? No. Are you saying that God can't do miracles? Well, since I've been the recipient of miracles, I would definitely say no. What I am saying is that signs and wonders as performed by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament had a very specific function and purpose. They were meant to bear witness to the truthfulness of the gospel message. That's what you see in this week's text. Go back to verse 25. Go to John 10. John 10. (coughs) Back to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, And you don't believe, so that's my message, right? The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, right? My works bear witness to my words. My miracles bear witness to the gospel. But it's not just Jesus. This is also true of the apostles as they went out commissioned by Jesus. Listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say about that connection. He says, the gospel message 
was declared at first by the Lord, listen to this language, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So as the apostles went out on behalf of Jesus and they did these signs and wonders, those works were bearing witness to their divinely given word. But friends, that time has passed. The apostles were meant to go out and lay the foundation for the church. And they did that. The foundation has been laid. The church is being built on top of that. Therefore, these signs and wonders which served a very specific purpose have now, by and large, ceased. So, that leaves us with a difficult question. How does this text, which is all about bearing witness, apply to us today? Well, I think it comes down to this. God's bearing witness to his gospel message is now happening through the church. God's witness-bearing works are being carried out by the church. Maybe not through signs and wonders, but the principle is still there. The heart of this application is evangelism. Just stop and consider what Jesus is doing here in John 10. In John 10, particularly in verse 38, Jesus is pleading with the crowds to believe in him. Consider me, he says. Consider my words, my works, my identity. It didn't start out that way. The crowd first went to Jesus, but by the whole time the whole thing's over with, Jesus is pleading with them to believe in him. Look at verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's pleading with them. Consider it so that you may know, so that you may trust, so that you may believe, so that you may be saved. Friends, this is what the church is doing today. We are going out and pleading with people to consider the works of Christ so that they might be saved. I was sharing the gospel message with someone over a meal this week, uh, a buddy from the gym, and over the course of our conversation, I said something like this, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father, he died on the cross, and then he rose from the grave so that you might be saved. What am I doing there as I share that gospel message? I'm pointing to the saving works of Jesus, his incarnation, his obedient life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. I'm pointing to all those things and say, believe in them so that you might be saved. This is what we're still doing today. Listen to the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, that includes Jesus, you see, God making his appeal through us. So the appeal that Jesus is making in John chapter 10, verse 38, he's still making it today. Well, I haven't seen Jesus. Oh, yes, you have. If you've seen the church, you've seen him. It's as if he is making his appeal through us. And what does the appeal sound like? Like this. We implore you, listen to the language, on behalf of Christ. 
be reconciled to God. The only way that you can be reconciled is if you believe in the works that Christ has accomplished. The church is still bearing witness to the works of Jesus so that some might be saved. So the first thing that I want you to see here is that the church is the agent of Jesus' continued witness bearing. And that happens primarily through evangelism. Now that is the application from this morning's text that is most immediately drawn from the text, an implication from the text. But there are two other things I feel like, man, there's no way I can finish this sermon without showing this to you guys. And I tried my darndest to figure out some kind of alliteration to tie them all together into like a three points of application. I couldn't do it. So I'm just going to tell you, I got two more for you that I want you to see from the text, okay? The first is this. And by the way, is it, is it exceptionally hot in here this morning? Good, good. We like it. Um, yeah, Scripture cannot be broken. That's the second thing I want us to see. Look at verse 35. Just right in the middle of his little argument here, Jesus says something that everyone there agrees with. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, he's saying something there. Spencer, please, I'm trying to preach. (laughs) We'll all just stop while Spencer adjusts the air conditioning. No, I'm just kidding. Thank you, buddy. Baby in tow. That's a real man. Amen? Yeah. Scripture cannot be broken. I don't have anything particularly like profound to say here. Jesus says it and he doesn't try to dress it up. He doesn't try to shine it. He doesn't try to persuade you. He's not being particularly clever. He's not like, well, have you ever thought about this and how it relates to that? There's no analogy. There's no metaphor. There's no syllogism. It's just the plain fact from the mouth of God himself that God's word is true. That's what it means, cannot be broken. I don't want to bore you by digging in and doing a Greek word study on the word that Jesus uses here. But if you, if you want, that would be a fun thing for you to do this afternoon. See how this word that Jesus uses here in verse 35 is used elsewhere in application to Scripture. It basically means that God's word is true in every way all the time. This is the reason why very often after I'll read Scripture on a Sunday morning, I'll say, God, this is God's word and it is inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient. Those are all just fancy words to say God's word is always and in every way at all times for all people under every circumstance true. The reason why God's word is true and cannot be broken is because the word of God is an extension of God himself. We already saw that. Flip back to John chapter 1. All the way back in John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, some of y'all are so flipping, sorry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The point here is simple. God's Word is God. 
The only way that God's word could not be true is if God himself could not be true. The only way in which scripture can be broken is if God himself can be broken. Now, a little further application here. I think in our day and age, this is very important. Your view of Scripture, if you profess to be a Christian, I understand you may be here today just visiting, investigating. Love you. Really glad you're here. Kind of not talking to you right now. If you're here and you say, no, Sean, I'm a Christian, full-throated, wholehearted, I profess to follow Jesus, and I want whatever he says is true to be true in my heart and in my life. If that's you, your view of Scripture should be the same as Jesus' view of Scripture. Right? That's what it means when we take the name Christian, we're literally taking his name, Christ, onto ourselves. We are Jesus followers. So what that means is that our views on everything in the world should line up with Jesus' views on everything in the world. Family, sex, finances, health, children, Scripture. Whatever Jesus says, we should calibrate our thinking and beliefs to line up with his Now, there are a number of people today, an exceedingly large number of people, a a growing number of people, who, who have taken the name of Christ on themselves, but who do not align their vision of this life with his vision. They do not share Jesus' view of sexuality. They've chosen to reject what Jesus clearly says in his word and pursue what they think is good and right and true. Just... It's June. Do I have to prove that to you? This happens in other less sinister ways. Here's what Jesus has to say about our finances, right? And we choose to reject that because we're Americans and we're going to pursue the American dream. Here's what Jesus has to say about family and children, and we're going to reject that because of whatever reason we want to reject that for. But it is most egregious when people who claim to follow Jesus say that his word is not true because the only way that we can follow Jesus is by listening to him in his word. Jesus tells us how we should calibrate our lives to be in alignment with him through his word. So to say that you follow Jesus and then reject his view of his word, the main way that he tells you how to follow him is lunacy. It's a contradiction. It does not make any sense. Not for the average Christian in the pew, not for seminary professors, not for pastors, not for missionaries, and yet there are these people out there in these positions who operate along these lines. Now listen, they may say that they think it's true, but what they mean by true and what we mean by true and what Jesus means by true are very different things. They'll say, well, yeah, God's word is true in a sense, It's true when it addresses spiritual matters, but not historical matters. As if you were going to be able to parse out the parts of the Bible that were true and the parts that are false and should be rejected. They'll say that God's word is only true as it has been interpreted through the church. They'll say that God's word is only true when it coincides with our spiritual experiences of the world. That's not what true means. That's what a postmodern understanding of true means. That's not what Jesus means when he says true. Listen, if you have more questions about this, I have, uh, I, could, I could 
I could keep talking for hours on this, but uh, two resources. I'll have them available for you. I'll just leave them right up here after the sermon. Number one, uh, Greg Gilbert's excellent, Why Trust the Bible. I have more copies. I only brought one up here. If, you, if it's gone and you want one, come get it. And then Kevin DeYoung's Taking God at His Word. He lays out Jesus' view of Scripture in a book uh, in a way that I don't have time for in a sermon. So I'll have these up here for you if you want them. And if they're gone and you want one anyways, just come and tell me. Now, the final thing that I want us to see in this morning's sermon is that this whole scene from John 10, right here at the end of John 10, is a microcosm. Oh, that's a fancy word, right? It just means like it's like a little version of a much larger phenomenon that's taking place, right? It's a, it's a micro, like a snow globe. It's a microcosm. <laughs> it's a microcosm of the much larger, this grand drama of redemption that is being played out throughout history even now. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me back to the Psalms. Turn to Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. <coughs> Let's read verses 1 through 3. I'll read you follow along with me. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the divine counsel, by the way, from Psalm 82. The wicked rulers of the earth assembling themselves together in their vainglory, thinking that they can be God. This psalm tells us that the nations of the earth and the peoples of the earth, as represented by the kings of the earth, they are in a perpetual state of raging against their God. This is a picture of the world in its unbelief. The world thrashes and lashes out against God. The peoples of the earth in their rebellion, according to Psalm 2, want to overthrow God as the high king of heaven. To put it plainly, they want to kill him. In this morning's text, we see the high king of heaven come down from his throne and reveal himself to this raging world. And when he fully reveals, well, not fully, but when he more fully reveals himself and says, I am the Father, they rage against him. They try to kill him. In John 10, we see what it looks like when the peoples of the earth plot the demise of God. They took counsel together against his life. Now look at verse 4. There's a transition that happens in verse 4. The psalmist transitions from what the nations are doing, that's kind of the earthly view, and he, he transitions from that to the heavenly view, right? What, what God sees when he looks down and see these, sees these kings rebelling against him. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Isn't this what you see Jesus doing here in John 10? Right? Everyone's all whipped up. They're ready to go. The wrath, the fury, they're ready to kill him. And Jesus is unbothered by it. He's in control of the situation. This is his third time. It's not his first rodeo. He's God. Gods don't get bothered by people who are whipping up their animosity against him. He remains cool, calm, and collected. He puts them on trial even as they rage against him. And then, by the way, when it's done, he just leaves. (laughs) He just leaves when he's good and ready. Now look at verse 5 of Psalm 2. Speaking of God, it says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus. Friends, what we need to know is that one day the, the patient God who is in heaven observing this, kind of sitting back and, and laughing at how silly it all is, one day that laughter will cease. The day will come when the God of the universe says, I've had enough, and as they rage against him, he will mirror their rage. And when they see his rage, they will tuck their tails and run in terror. The men standing with stones in their hands have no idea who it is that's standing before them. He's the king standing on Zion's hill. They see a weak lamb, but one day they will see the lion. They will see him face to face. One day Jesus will roar onto the scene and break his enemies with a rod of iron. But before he does that, he calls out to them in grace. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let's start in 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Isn't this what we see with Jesus in John 10? He's saying, stop before you do this. Before you rage against me and make me lose my cool and rage against you, consider what you're doing. It doesn't have to be this way. I love you. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to sit under my wrath. Turn to me. I love you. Come home to me. Friends, Jesus is saying the same thing to us today. He's calling you, even you today. Stop with your rebellion, with your rage, with your anger. Enough with the excuses. I'm here. I love you. Come home to me. As I was thinking, we spent three or four weeks in John so far, and uh, excuse me, in John chapter 10. And uh, as we were trying to think through what, what would be a good response song to end on for this week's sermon, uh, man, Ancient of Days just feels like it's the perfect way to end our time 
in John 10. Just listen to the words of the song we're about to sing together and you tell me, you know, in your mind. You just consider, think about the themes that are covered in this, this song that we've studied together in John 10. The song is called Ancient of Days and it goes like this. Though the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear for this truth remains that my God is the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure and he knows my name. He knows the name of all of his sheep. For my God is the ancient of days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne, it shall remain and ever stand. If you think that's true, with a heart full of joy, stand and sing with me.